0: Chapter two, Iron and Steel. A bridge to modernity. My story about modern architecture begins with an iron bridge completed in 1779, figure one. It's only questionably modern, and for that matter, only questionably architecture, but it illustrates the industrial cultures where modern architecture started to form. The bridge was made from five arched cast iron ribs, spreading their load to two masonry abutments. Assembled without using nuts and bolts, the bridge became so famous, because its construction was so novel, that the town forming around it took its name, Iron Bridge. Iron Bridge sat in a mineral-rich gorge in England's West Midlands, became the crucible of the 18th century's Industrial Revolution. The Iron Bridge was proposed by an architect, Thomas Pritchard, and it bears his ornamental flourishes but it was executed under the direction of a fabricator, Abraham Darby the III. The Darby's family's coal brookdale foundry was then a world leader in iron production. The first Abraham Darby had worked out how to use coked coal rather than charcoal made from timber to raise temperatures in the blast furnace where iron was made. This yielded consistently higher quality iron at lower cost made in large furnaces that could run continuously. Cole Brookdale's inventions in the volume production of iron and growing experience in fabricating iron components contributed not just to the bridge, but to the whole industrial revolution. The iron bridge introduces four themes that recur throughout this book. First it indicates the beginnings of a shift in global culture over two centuries from artisan manufacturing towards mass production. While the components of the bridge were sourced nearby using local ironstone, clay, sand, limestone, coal and water, it was assembled from a limited number of repeated components. This anticipated a huge cultural shift. New technologies enabled cheaper and quicker manufacturing, opening up industrial production in in fields like textiles and furniture that were previously the province of artisans. This new industrial culture usually separated design from making, where seamstresses or joiners, for example, made design decisions with their tools in hand based on their experience of working materials. Designers began to emerge in various fields who imagined artifacts and drew them for others to make. In consequence, makers skills became increasingly channeled into the act. reproduction of given designs. While the figure of the architect emerged well before mass production out of ancient origins rediscovered in the 15th century, the modern idea of the professional who draws buildings got shaped in association with this emerging idea of design. The modern notion of construction as an industry emerged with it, gradually replacing old priorities of art and craft in building with new ideas about efficiency and predictability. Second, the Iron Bridge illustrates the emergence of the idea of a single global culture. Early mass production like that in the Seven Gorge quickly exceeded the stock of local raw materials. The hunger of new factories from blast foundries to textile mills, and the hunger of their owners for profit, meant that materials and workers were sought elsewhere as local supplies dwindled. Associated ideas about raw materials being commodities and individual workers combining into a collective called labour started to form the modern habit of imagining the world in terms of resource to be exploited. The more the machines produced and the greater demand for the cheaper products, the wider the distribution of those products. Transport infrastructures were constructed to bring in material and labour resources and to ship out manufactured ones. For example, in a short time at the end of the 18th century, the River Severn flowing through Iron Bridge became linked to other rivers via a canal network, connecting British cities, joined with ports linked to global shipping. By the middle of the 19th century, these canals were supplanted by railways that could move more goods and people at higher speeds. In the later 20th century, railways themselves became overtaken by motorways, air transport and containerisation. Thus, the transport infrastructures made necessary by industry expanded and accelerated during this modern period. They produced in their wake a global culture where industry flourished and where global consumption and mass travel seemed to shrink distances and cultural differences. This alliance of trade, industry, and shipping fueled Western countries' colonialization of parts of Africa, Asia, and the Americas during the 18th and 19th centuries. For example, in the northeast England on the River Tyne, rather than the Severn, Lord Armstrong El- Armstrong's Elwick Works produced munitions, ships, and hydraulic construction equipment. These were sold without scruple to armies, militia, governments and corporations including, famously, both sides of the same conflict. Fueled by technocratic enterprises, like Armstrong's colonialism opened up what became imagined as the material and human resources of conquered lands to the new industries. It brought enormous wealth to European and North American captains of industry and often significant suffering to the places and peoples plundered. The novel goods and values exploited by new industries celebrated global commerce, market forces and the idea of industry as progress, which then seem to become their inevitable consequence. Just as the idea of a single global culture is latent in the reproduced components of the Iron Bridge, so too are modern ideas of economy and technology, Taken together, these constitute the third theme, I argued, that the bridge illustrates. New industries like Cole Brookdale Foundry produced massive social and cultural change in the 18th century and early 19th centuries. The population of England's West Midlands, like much of Western Europe and later the USA, shifted largely from rural agricultural work to urban and industrial work. Growing urban populations sustained industrial production and, and encouraged the consumption of its outputs. The massive changes that successive generations observed, the emergence of labour saving devices, for example the mangle to the fridge, all the wonder drugs from anaesthetic to antibiotics, became inextricably linked in people's minds with the idea of technology. And this association of technology with progress, popularised through novel and in- innovations, became inseparable from modernity. The reach of manufacturing industries and transport infrastructures increasingly extended to almost every facet of everyday life, and the global economy on which the modern idea of progress relied became increasingly pervasive. The word economy once referred to the frugal management of a household, to an ancient villa and its land, sustaining a social society of people living and working there, Standing for the idea that just enough was sufficient, but the substantial costs of industrial production and the, inst- and the extravagant profits to be made from it, made loan finance, once condemned as the evil of usury, more culturally acceptable. The financiers made the biggest profits of all. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, colonialism and transport globalised finance, at least as much as they globalised the new industries. The Iron Bridge also introduces a fourth idea about architectural imaginability, imageability. Whether or not it was the first Iron Bridge in the world, that's been debated. It was the first whose image became widely distributed. At the time, its spindly see-through structure looked remarkable to eyes accustomed to brick or stone. How could something so apparently fragile be evidently so strong? The structure drew artists intrigued to depict it an exhibition celebrating the bridge's bicentenary in 1979 held at London's Royal Academy, collected over 50 images made between 1750 and 1830. Pictures of the bridge sat in its picturesque gorge symbolised the wonder of technology, and new media technologies like engraving and printing allowed the widespread distribution of its imagery, lending it global significance. Like many famous works of modern architecture images of the iron bridge seemed to surpass the structure's own physical presence. Its depiction in paintings and engravings acquired a currency beyond the original, admired by a much bigger audience than had seen the bridge firsthand, making it a striking symbol of the new, of the idea of the new. The iron bridge also illustrates imageability in another way. Made in iron, Assembled from multiple components, it's constructed in the same form as masonry arch. Effectively, it took what was then the known image of a bridge, the arch, and reproduced it in a new material. Arches suit how brick and stone behave in compression, when loaded with weight from above, distributing loads evenly from central keystones to the ground. Meanwhile, Iron, meanwhile, has different properties. Made into chain links and cables, it performs better in tension, where forces tend to pull it apart. This was exploited in 1801 in the inventor James Finley's design for Jacobs Creek Bridge in the Westmoreland, County, Pennsylvania, suspending a deck from iron trusses and establishing the basic components of the modern suspension bridge. Later structures, like engineer Thomas Telford's Menai Bridge in North Wales, 1820, an Isambard Kingdom, Brunel's Clifton Suspension Bridge in Bristol, UK, 1834, consolidated a new logic for iron construction and new image for iron bridges. Derived more directly from the logic of the material, while iron bridges, iron bridge was innovative, it was nevertheless constrained on its designers' imaginations by their prevailing idea of what a bridge ought to look like. This raises an important point that there may that there remain deeply embedded in cultural assumptions about the imagery of certain types of buildings and structures. Children learn culturally coded images so they can distinguish a living room from a street, for example, or a house from an office. And people think they know what buildings look like after that. But these codes become so powerful that designers take time to challenge them. More significantly, they become so powerful that people find it hard to accept new architectural images when familiar ones are challenged. I want to mention one last way that the Iron Bridge anticipated modern architecture. Recent surveys of the bridge show how its repeated components were adjusted individually during manufacturing to fit their neighbours. There is, it's been shown, tens of millimetres difference between seemingly identical components. The ideal of mass production in architecture has always been that, an ideal. Despite ongoing enthusiasm for industrialization, particular builders usually constructed modern buildings on particular sites for particular clients from the drawings of particular designs. During the 20th century, it grew less common for architects to design every detail of buildings and more common for them to specify mass-produced components like prefabricated door sets, roof trusses or kitchen units. Only rarely, however, were whole buildings mass produced nevertheless the image of mass production remained insistent in modern architecture to the point where bespoke buildings were sometimes made to look prefabricated to assert their modernity commenters commentators keen on industrial production argued repeatedly over more than a century that prefabrication was the imminent future of architecture without it being fulfilled on any scale iron and modern science it's remarkable that iron manufacturing ever became widespread. Iron is extracted from mineral, from iron ore, at a boiling point of 1,535 degrees Celsius, involving fierce heat and light. This doesn't produce pure iron, but an impure substance named pig iron, after the shape of the casting beds once used, which is hard and brittle. This then gets remelted, during which time it is carefully decarburized to control the level of carbon and impurities like sulphur, improving the strength of the material before being left once again to cool. It sometimes claims that the engineering innovations of the Industrial Revolution emerged from modern science, but until the mid-19th century, the history of iron manufacturing was largely the history of trial and error. Telford's and Brunel's, the Bridges for example, were worked out from instinct and experience, preceding any comprehensive theory of structures. Thomas Newcomen's and James Watts' 18th century work developing stream en- steam engines, despite the latter's re- theoretical research into chemistry late in life, emerged from the workshop and not from calculation. Likewise, the Derby family's endeavours at Cole Brookdale were based on testing and observation. Early 19th century engineering aspired to scientific authority, However, and science encouraged the culture in which engineering flourished. The modern idea of science seeking mathematical descriptions of natural phenomena out of systematic experiments emerged in the West in the 16th and 17th centuries. It was popularized by the reputations of figures like Nicholas Cop- Copernicus who proposed in 1549 that the earth resolved around the sun and not vice versa and Isaac Newton, whose physics linked astronomical observations with Earth-bound ones, produced theories of optics and calculus. Theories like these emphasised rational analysis, encouraging a gradual shift from a God-fearing medieval society, where humans imagined themselves subservient to the natural world, towards a 20th century secular condition, where science and technology made humans feel they could control the world. After the construction of the iron bridge, there were rapid improvements in making iron stronger and more predictable. Henry Courts patented the pudding process in 1783, stirring molten iron to draw in oxygen and burn out carbon. In 1832, John Gibbons tried different geometries of blast furnace, significantly increasing production capacity. By the mid-19th century, wrought iron became a reliable construction material albeit that mass-produced components were still tested by hand and eye to ensure their soundness. It was only towards the end of that century that the design of iron structures became more scientific, when engineers learnt to calculate stresses and deflections accurately. The St Genevieve Library in Paris was designed by architect Henry Le Bruste between 1838 and 1850, at the point between early experiments in mass-producing iron components and their widespread use in building, between trial and error and applied science. The twin iron vaults of its lofty reading room were tied to thick stone piers lining the perimeter, connected by arched openings containing tall book stacks with windows above. In conjunction with the building's spare decoration, the vaults anticipated the light and airy qualities of modern buildings, St. Genevieve Library was controversial in mid-19th century. It rejected the prevailing idea, promoted by that city's famous architecture school, L'Ecole des Beaux-Arts, that architecture should involve the artful composition of decorative forms derived from scholarly study of the orders of classical architecture. The library instead appeared strikingly plain. Structure and decoration were effectively separated out Decoration was applied to panels set into and between the primary structure, expressing the structural design of the buildings visually. These ideas chimed with emerging architectural thinkers, notably John Ruskin, whose book Modern Painters, first published anonymously in 1843, argued that art should be honest to the realities of nature, expanded in his Seven Lamps of Architecture, 1849, which promoted truth including the honest expression of structural forces as essential to beauty and life. For these reasons of material, structure and decoration, the Saint-Genevieve Library was later claimed as a progenitor of modern architecture, but it also stood for emerging modernity in another way. Labrusset knew the novelist Victor Hugo, who remains famously for The Hunchback of Notre Dame, written at the time of the July Revolution in France in 1830 and published in 1831. Hugo asked Le Brousse to to comment on a draft chapter, criticising scholarly beaux-arts architecture. Set in Notre Dame Cathedral in 1482, the chapter follows an encounter between Arcadian Claude Frollo and a character who turns out to be King Louis. At a key moment, Frollo glances down at a printed book on the table, and then up through a window to the towers of the cathedral. This, the book, he reflects wistfully, will kill that, the cathedral. Hugo's novel was set when the invention of the printing press by John Guttenberg in 1436 allowed the widespread distribution of books, but Hugo made a contemporary point. He claimed via Frollo that architecture was understood before printing, before mass production not just in terms of shelter or as a container of human activities, but instead as a form of knowledge. And that knowledge, carved in stone in the great buildings of human culture, was a kind of cultural currency that could be read by the people whose lives those great buildings touched. Architecture, he suggests, was a force for social integration because it expressed shared symbols. Hugo's character argued that architecture was losing its uniting power to the page, Prophesizing that the spread of Copernican and Newtonian science through printing would encourage the culture of industrialization to take over every facet of human life. Hugo thus took aim at the Beaux Arts architects who derived their designs from book learning, copying and recopying forms of the Greek and Romans, forgetting, he thought, how to think for themselves. They made empty copies of our ancient architecture, he implied. In a city where Notre Dame showed how architecture once embodied the latest knowledge and where it could do that again. The historian, Neil Levine, argued that La design for his strange, plain library, with its spindly iron vaults and resistance to classical style, was an optimistic response to Hugo's criticism. An attempt to make architecture a cultural force again, this time reflecting the 19th century's emerging knowledge. The library's plain stone facades were carved with 810 names in 27 panels, presenting a roll call of thinkers collected in the library, organized in chronological order from the Old Testament figure, Moses, to the Swedish scientist, Basil who died in 1848 when the names were carved. The architecture of the library thus echoed and celebrated the printed page. If the book had killed ancient architecture, as Hugo supposed, then St. Genevieve Library suggested that architecture should be made afresh out of the new scientific world of the book. The names on the library's façades described the huge intellectual shift from medieval European cultures, dominated by a single Christian God, to the so-called rational thought of 19th century modern science and technology. Designed at the beginning of the so-called Second Republic in France, The names also described a parallel connected shift towards ideas of modern industrial democracy, away from the absolute monarchies of European past. The library's vaults made in iron, the technological materials of the moment, were physically and metaphorically tied to stone walls, whose carved names expressed the intellectual forces that iron seemed to represent. These vaults stood for their architect's premonition that a meaningful modern architecture was possible derived from modern science and the technical cultures of industrial production. The library highlighted an apparent tension emerging at that time between engineering and architecture, between new technologies of construction and an older idea of architecture as an expression of culture. How it seemed to ask, might the organisation and imagery of architecture embrace the culture of modernity? This fraught question preoccupied certain architects well into the next century. Space and industrial culture. Railways arrived in European and American cities in the mid-19th century, and their promoters, lofty terminus stations, frequently boasting dramatic iron vaults, became understood in retrospect, as further addressing this question, shifting attention from architecture's facades to its interior spaces. St Pancreas Station, London, 1868 is a famous example its train sheds arched trusses designed by engineer william barlow soared 75 meters over the tracks without intermediate columns still influenced by older ideas about civic decorum however this striking display of iron's potential was enclosed within masonry walls and concealed from the streets by the 10 story midland grand hotel a gothic revival fairy tale decorated with gables and fancy balconies designed by architect george gilbert scott architecture and engineering train shed and station building were frequently separated physically and intellectually in such railway terminals but it was the iron sheds that most captured people's imaginations it is no coincidence that the painter edward manet chose the train shed of a parisian station Buzzing with activity and filled evocatively with steam, steam to depict the emerging atmosphere of modernity rather than the conventional station building, his painting, Gare Saint Lazare, 1873. At that time, engineers, not architects, were most comfortable with structural opportunities, imagery, and space enclosing potential of iron. Some like Gustave Eiffel and Joseph Paxton came from working-class backgrounds and transcended rigid class structures through entrepreneurship and technical cunning. Paxton and Eiffel cultivating the image of self-made practical people that just got on with things, in opposition to scholarly gentlemen architects, who, the implication was, dithered and delayed. They reimagined iron not just as a material for roofs with masonry walls, but as a structural framing that could define the spaces of buildings. Indeed, they helped define the idea of space as the end result of modern architecture, a notion still forming as recently as the 1920s. Paxton was a gardener turned engineer. He earned his reputation as the Duke of Devonshire's fixer, transforming the Duke's park at Chatworth, UK, with hydraulic fountains, water displays, and a new village to replace the one previously disrupting the Duke's view. Paxton's iron-framed glass house there the Great Conservatory, 1837, inspired the commission for another at London's Kew Gardens, 1849, housing a giant water lily found in the colony of British. When a pet project of Queen Victoria's consort, Prince Albert, for a temporary great exhibition of technological wonders and colonial curiosities in London's Hyde Park ran into difficulties in 1851. Paxton proposed a giant greenhouse to contain the exhibits, a crystal palace made from mass-produced components conceived for speed and efficiency of construction. Paxton devised a system of structural iron elements holding the largest sheets of glass then available, fixed into timber. Paxton gutters supported on a grid of iron trusses, columns and beams. Those trusses were raised into place using horse power Aided by counterweighted weighted bollocks. Special wagons were designed, whose wheels fitted into the gutters on which glaciers lay to fix the panes quickly. Bolt holes in the ironwork were machined into the foundry, to save filling the, them smooth on the site, to save filing them smooth on the site, and special machines were designed to produce several grooved and bevelled sash bars at once out of a single plank of timber. The shell of the Crystal Palace, then the largest enclosed space in the world, was erected in just four months. Opening panels were added at high level to extract rising hot air, and a timber slatted floor allowed cool air to be drawn in to replace it at low level, with the Paxton gutters profiled to collect condensation. These climate control measures were carefully considered, but they couldn't mitigate the overheating, and overlighting problems of putting an exhibition in a large greenhouse in summer. And various exhibitors, including Armstrong Elwick's works and Cole Brookdale Foundry, hung giant drapes to shade their exhibits, attracting visitors in vast numbers. The exhibition illustrated modern ideas and helped establish a new popular enchantment, with technological progress. The Crystal Palace stood for fresh mythologies, celebrating rational science and technical innovation, and a gradual shift away from traditional religious mythologies. Moreover, it served as a display case for the emerging products of modern globalised trade, illustrating vividly the burgeoning connections between global finance and colonial exploitation, ideas about progress and a universal free market, and industrial production and the idea of the state. Refining ideas about mass production, already latent in the Iron Bridge, the Crystal Palace also anticipated the modern idea of space. Visitors circulated inside its grid of slender columns and spidery trusses, with countless glimpses appearing and disappearing in a perpetual interlacing of structure. In long perspective, the grids of columns and glazing bars stretched almost to infinity, the palace's volume thus exemplified the mathematical conception of space, as a grid measured in equal increments on x, y and z axes, as a field extending to infinity in all directions. If moving around the Crystal Palace felt strikingly new, then the first experiences of climbing the curving latticework of Eiffel's tower must have seen something else again. Gustav Eiffel, son of a German forester, began as an apprentice engineer before metal workshops in a Parisian suburb. He made a reputation building large span iron bridges at Oporto, Portugal, 1875, and the world's largest arc plus a series of plions at a garabit in France's Massif Central, 1884. Eiffel also engineered the Statue of Liberty, shipped to New York as a gift from France, 1881, developing a mathematical solution for the tricky structural problem of raising Liberty's torch bearing arm outwards from her body. Eiffel's tower was the centrepiece of another temporary exhibition of technical wonders. The 1889 Paris World's Fair housed in pavilions around its base. Designed for rapid construction, it tapped his previous experience. The tower was effectively a giant bridge pylon without the bridge, sat on four foundations made using pressurised, waterproof cassions, invented for building footings in rivers, allowing it, to be contr- allowing it to be constructed on sodden ground. Opened at a time when few aviators had flown and aerial views were figments of artists' imaginations, the public found the tower's three lofty viewing platforms spectacular. Equally striking was the experience of moving upward through its structural legs in innovative elevators, themselves at the forefront of technology. Glimpses soared skyward, framing distant prospects, a cinematic experience before the popularisation of cinema. Spiral stairs, sometimes locked deep in the structure and sometimes flying precariously outside, became panoramic devices. The tower was not universally popular, especially among Paris's elite one of whom quipped that he preferred to eat at its restaurants because it was only there that he couldn't see it on the skyline. Sensitive to such criticism, Eiffel talked up the tower's patriotic role for making military observations in the event of invasion and topped it with a meteorological laboratory to associate the tower with scientific enterprise, and it quickly became a tourist staple now characterising Paris in countless depictions, models and novelty paperweights. Around the time the Eiffel Tower was imagined, the idea of space was being contested in German language, art criticism, by, theori- by theorists like Konrad Fiedler, Gottfried Semper and August Schmar- Schmarsel. In 1846, Karl Botticher had understood architectural style as an integration of systems of production and symbolization, proposing a new, similar integration for iron. In 1878, Semper argued that architecture should express monumentality, the structures of society. Architecture, he believes, should give order to culture and symbolise culture, particularly through its bicliding, meaning clothing or cladding that word cladding became important it helped modern architects to imagine facades as curtains hung around spaces rather than as heavy structures enclosing them meanwhile Schmarsaw's room theory 1893 argued that dynamic bodily movement around space offered a better way to appreciate architecture than the static viewing of forms adrian 40 has highlighted that such theories about space which entered English language debates about modern architecture only in the 20th century via writers including Adolf Loos, Alois Riegel, and Siegfried Gideon were adopted only imprecisely by modern architects, who conflated them awkwardly. Forty reflected how modern architects came to understand space imprecisely, as both something static contained within walls and something dynamic flowing through architecture. They imagined it as an abstract mathematical grid, but also understood it from the bodily viewpoint of individuals moving around. They saw space as simultaneously tightly bounded and with infinite extent, and they imagined it both as an abstract idea and as stuff that architects could shape. The emerging vocabulary of space in modern architecture was thus sometimes muddled, but it's no coincidence that it began forming when the fleshless skeletons of the early railway terminals Crystal Palace and Eiffel Tower were constructed because the heightened experiences of those structures illustrated vividly how the idea of space could be imagined. Sullivan Wright and the separation of wall from structure. A sequence of innovations in the latter part of the 19th century transformed iron technology, resulting in the widespread production of less brittle variants called mild steel. The inventor, Henry Bessemer, successfully blew cold air through molten iron at his London bronze powder factory in 1856, wholly decarbonising it. He licensed his process to manufacturers, but it turned out that his innovation relied on low-phosphorus iron ore, which wasn't widely available, and it stalled. It took amateur chemist Sydney Gilchrist Thomas to resolve how to remove phosphorus from iron to solve the problem. Successfully producing a batch of steel in April 1879, parallel developments in iron rolling by John Allien, for example, to fabricate sections of St Pancreas Station's roof, matured through the 1860s. By 1890, the combination of the basic Bessemer process which with improved rolling mills, alongside other refinements, resulted in bigger sections and longer lengths of steel whose chemistry could be controlled to achieve different material properties. In architecture this meant that the trusses and arches made of smaller brittle iron components could be replaced up to certain lengths by single ductile steel beams or columns and trusses made of mild steel elements could cover longer spans. Steel construction thus became easier, faster and cheaper than iron. The new material eventually yielded new architectural imagery but it took architects decades to work that out. By 1890, technical initiative in steel production had shifted from Europe to America. Chicago was an important center characterized into the 20th century by sparks from its Bessemer converts, puncturing nighttime views of the Lake Michigan. Various architects from Chicago's substantial German immigrant community knew Semper's ideas but the rapid development of steel-framed buildings there owed more to commercial motivations than theoretical ones. Chicago was destroyed in a catastrophic fire in 1871. As reconstruction gathered pace, soaring land values encouraged developers and architects to build high, maximising the lettable area on each plot to maximise revenues after the inventor Alicia Otis made hydraulic elevators safe, increasing the number of floors that could be accessed easily. The primary constraint on tall buildings became the capacity for structural masonry to bear load. The 18-storey Monadnock building in Chicago's downtown loop, 1893, designed by Burnham and Root, demonstrated the limits of what was possible in brick its massive, flared plinth illustrating the bulk of masonry needed to support the walls above. The idea that steel frames could exceed the height limits of brickwork came not from architects but from the local steel industry. The first building to hang its external walls from a Bessemer steel frame was the Home Insurance Building in the Loop. Designed by William Le Baron, Jenny, 1885, followed by holabird Rochers, Tacoma Building, 1888, rapid construction was achieved by suspending brick, stone and terracotta work from the frame, permitting its completion in advance of the external walls. Those walls no longer load-bearing thus became separated conceptually from the building's structure, echoing Semper's ideas about cladding. Louis Sullivan of Chicago's firm Adler & Sullivan developed this approach in the Wainwright Building, St. Louis, 1890 and the Guarantee Building, Buffalo, 1895. However, just as Ironbridge's Iron Bridge took the shape of a masonry arch, early steel-framed buildings designed by Chicago architects seemed constrained by established architectural imagery. Sullivan initially understood these projects primarily as a decorative problem about the proper expression of tall buildings, more than an opportunity for a new architectural logic. Adler & Sullivan's substantial, complex, intricately detailed auditorium building in Chicago's Loop was completed in 1889, wrapping an opera house with offices, hotel rooms and a 17-storey tower. Its ingenious section, constructed in steel frame with masonry walls, resolved practically the differing needs of diverse accommodation. The theatre was first lit by electric light, also employing a novel system to circulate air and its innovative steel and concrete raft foundations were loaded up with weights that were removed while the building was constructed to avoid different parts settling at different rates. Integrating its frame structure with new building services, the auditorium building seemed to be imagined as a technological machine. Critic Colin Rowe argued in a 1956 essay, Chicago Frame, that although Sullivan and his contemporaries didn't grasp the full implications of what they were doing, they changed architecture. They integrated new technologies into building, valuing practicality, simplicity and innovation. More importantly, they pointed the way towards a new steel-framed architectural logic, illustrating the separation of cladding from structure. Rowe emphasised the significance of this. The frame has come to possess a value for contemporary architecture, he wrote, equivalent to that of the column for classical antiquity and the Renaissance. The frame establishes throughout the building like a common ratio to which all the parts are related, and, like the vaulting bay in the Gothic cathedral, it prescribes a system to which all parts are subordinate. Rowe linked the innovations of downtown Chicago's steel-framed skyscrapers with the work of another architect working in that city's suburbs, Frank Lloyd Wright. Wright, who assisted Adler and Sullivan with the auditorium building, tested a set of ideas through a sequence of brick and timber-built houses. These included the Ward-Wiltis House, Highland Park, Illinois, 1901, Darwin Mountain House, Buffalo, 1904, and Frederick Robbie House, Chicago, 1907. Before modernity, most buildings in the west were constructed from masonry and timber, a combination controlled by the timber sizes that could be cut efficiently from logs, preferring floor spans of 6 meters or less. Masonry and timber thus tend to produce a group of rectangular rooms, enclosed by load-bearing walls, holding up the floors. Their architectural logic, implying a series of cellular rooms surrounded by heavy walls, with small openings. Wright's designs tested within the constraints of those materials how far conventional four-square masonry boxes could be dissolved. He experimented with interlocking spaces at the corners of rooms, achieved using concealed steel lintels, a central hearth expressed as a pinwheel around which those interlocking spaces were arranged, Horizontal lines expressed in roofs and window strips to cheat the appearance of weighty masonry, and interior spaces linked to their surrounding landscapes by loggias and a plain wall extending outwards from buildings. Images of Wright's work were published in Germany in 1911. They became influential in Europe, like images of Chicago's steel framed towers had previously, and both contributed to the slow emergence of a distinctive architectural expression for the steel frame there during the first half of the 20th century. While the frame developed quickly as a commercial and technical audience experience in America, straightforwardly symbolising trade and industry, Roe argued European architects only embraced it slowly, agonising about it instead as a new spatial idea. New Images of Modernity The architectural idea of the steel frame became represented strikingly in Vladimir Tatlin's The Monument to the Third International, 1920, an unbuilt project for which only a handful of drawings and model photographs survived. The monument followed the 1917 Russian Revolution when communists deposed the ruling elite and, became, and began instituting new patterns of collective living. It was claimed for constructivism, a movement calling for art to go into the factory where the real body of life is made. Rejecting elite arts proposed instead non-utilitarian constructions, fusing life with arts through industry and mass production. Far from the rectangular grids of office buildings in Chicago, Tatlin's tower proposed a leaning spiral of columns and diagonal bracing propped on an inclined pylon with three glass rooms locked within. A cube housing legislative assemblies would resolve on its axis once a year. Above that, a pyramid for executive bodies would resolve once a month. On top of that, a cylinder rotating once a day would issue forth newspapers, proclamations and pamphlets, spinning the spin doctors. The tower's form derived from structural logic, but was conceived primarily as an image of dynamism, symbolising agitation and propaganda. A twisting motion frozen in steel with mobile rooms inside, it reinvented Peter Bruegel's the Elder's famous 1563 painting of the Tower of Babel and the Eiffel Tower, substituting their supposedly static images with a dynamic depiction of space. And space here was not layered into rectilinear floors and rooms, but instead became a remarkable three dimensional volume. The image of Tatlin's Tower was unique in modern architecture striking in architects' imaginations. Another image of the steel frame that became a key reference was the administration block of the Fagus Shoe, last factory at Edfield, Germany, 1913, designed by Walter Gropius and Hans Meyer. It's the first project I've discussed here that no one would dispute calling modern. Sometimes presented as a divisive step in liberating construction from artistic ornament, While Gropius' star has waned in histories of modern architecture, he was equal in fame to Le Corboisier in the 1930s and 1940s. The Fagus factory was striking for three novel elements. First, in front of its steel columns faced in brick were large panels of glass hung from the frame, seemingly applied to the walls as panes. This was subsequently hailed inaccurately as the first glass curtain wall named after Semper's ideas. Second, the traditional pitched roof was rejected in favor of a flat roof, in fact, laid within a slight fall for draining rainwater, an element that became an inescapable image of modernity. Third, structural steel columns were shifted away from the corners of the building, where instead the glass curtains met at a slender steel glazing bar, with opening lights provided right at the junction at a time when masonry walls were normal, always thickest at corners for structural reasons. This detail, linked to Wainwright's opening up of corners, appeared strikingly light and free-floating, apparently suggesting that interior and exterior spaces could flow into one another. Thus, the corner window liberated from structural constraints by technology became another key element of modern architecture. Inspired by Wright's houses, Architects continued to test how spaces could be imagined if rigid masonry rooms became dissolved and walls became understood instead as surfaces in space. Steel allowed floors to be supported on columns or walls in fewer places than timber. Rather than enclosing a series of cells, walls could thus be reimagined as screening but not enclosing activities, separating them but not parceling them up into compartments. As free standing planes within larger spaces. These planes could be imagined as slipping out of buildings past a perimeter glass screen, blurring divisions between inside and outside, encouraged by the notion of space as flowing and fluid. This idea was influenced by a modern painting in the late 1910s and, na- and early 1920s. Cubist paintings like those of Fernand Leger and Juan Gris. Our expressionist paintings like Wassily Kandinsky's broke up and extracted features and everyday objects into fragmented compositions, using flattened perspectives and multiple perspective viewpoints, rather than depicting conventional scenes. These painters instead composed lines and blocks of colour in the space of the painting. Various modern architects imagined they were doing something similar, arranging walls as lines and planes in space. And only then making a we- weather-tight enclosure around them, and their planned drawings sometimes looked like compositions by Kandinsky or Leger. A house in Utrecht, the Netherlands, planned for young widow Trude Schrader, and her three children by furniture designer Gerrit Reitveldt 1924, provided an extraordinary demonstration of this architecture of planes. Client and designer egged each other on to make something remarkable and the small house seemed less like a building than a giant piece of inhabitable furniture. Curtain walls were imagined as sliding or folding planes. Key furniture elements were fitted with mobile pieces expressed as folding and sliding planes at another scale. Most of the detached furniture was also mobile. Rooms could be opened up in the daytime while in the evening walls could be slid out to enclose a bedroom and bathroom with for example a sofa folding into a bed and a table hinged down. Incorporating the latest technology, mains electricity, central heating and even an early dishwasher, the Schroeder house was delightfully gadgety. Constructionally, it was a hybrid of steel, masonry and reinforced concrete composed to achieve artistic effects, but it was immediately striking. Its elevations were imagined not as independent faces, but as parts of three-dimensional composition of interiors and exterior planes. Articulated by hinging, folding and sliding elements, slender steel columns appeared to suspend planes in mid-air. Walls, balconies and supports oversailed one another to suggest visually a collection of free-standing objects grouped artistically in space, clearly different from load-bearing masonry walls. Primary colours, red, yellow and blue, were artfully applied to the edges of surfaces, inside and out, against a backdrop of white, to heighten the visual illusion of floating surfaces. These colours related to the cubist and expressionist art, specifically the contemporary Dutch art movement, De Stijl. the style. The result was a striking demonstration of a planar architectural logic whose potential was extended by modern materials. Gropius developed his articulation of the Fagus factory without its brick panels at another framed structure finished in 1926, the headquarters of the Bauhaus School of Design in Dessau, Germany, where he became the first head. The building consolidated an appreciation of the visual detachment of planes, as developed through the work of Wright, De Stijl, and Reitfeld, part hippie commune, part Zen monastery. As Richard Weston put it. The curriculum of Gropius Bauhaus reflected its new home, emphasising engineering, geometry and industrial craft with the addition of radical politics. In its early years it was imagined as a reinvented medieval craft guild and Bauhaus students worked directly with materials including steel. They integrated art and engineering, craft and machine production, product design and manufacturing. Striking furniture paintings, sculptures, objects and later architecture resulted envisaged as symbols of modernity, and the Bauhaus ethos went on to inspire numerous modern architects. By the 1930s, thanks partly to images produced there, curtain walls, flat roofs, corner windows and apparently free-standing planes became linked together into what Rainer Barham later called the teenage uniform of modern architecture. Mies on campus the first of the four anointed superheroes of modern architecture i'll introduce here refined the logic steel of steel-framed architecture obsessively known to architects simply as mies 1886 to 1969 he was born ludwig mies at aachen on the german dutch border the family firm made stone fireplaces and he acquired an early sense of the dignity of materials and the craftspeople who worked them. In nineteen twenty two, spending time with artists from the Dada movement, who deliberately cultivated their personas, he reinvented himself as Ludwig Meys van der Rohe. adding his mother's surname and the van der, which hinted without basis, at Dutch nobility, Meys began his career as draftsman at the Berlin Office of Architect, Peter Barnes from 1910 to 11, overlapping there with Gropius Meyer and briefly an odd Swiss man who later styled himself Le Corboisier. Alongside his practical training, Mies read vor- voraciously in the ph- philosophy, history and art criticism, encouraged by the philosopher Alois Ryle who is an early client of Dateliff Martins has argued that Mies took from his apprenticeship with Behrens the idea of a quest for architectural forms to suit the modern age, which could be seen as universal. From the work of Dutch architect H.P. Berlage, he became interested in a handful of so-called normal forms and types. Basic shapes supposedly drawn from ancient traditions, from Gropius Bruno Taut, and the so-called November group. He took the idea that creativity, freedom, and social justice were connected, and from Catholic philosopher Romano Guani, he understood the purpose of life as directing the human spirit into the future. The resulting mise was highly contradictory. A curious spiritual, non-political, socialist author- authoritarian, he was hard enough to place in interwar Germany, that he was both commissioned to design a memorial to the murder. Communists Karl Liebnacht and Rosa Luxemburg 1926, and remained able to practice modern architecture after it was censored by the Nazis following their rise to power in 1933 until they decisively pronounced it degenerate in 1937. In that year Myers was inv- invited to design a house in the American state of Wyoming. His reputation preceded him, based on a pavilion he designed for 1929 Expo in Barcelona, a remarkable exercise in the architecture of planes, and on his role as the last head of the Bauhaus before it closed in 1933. On an extended visit, Myers negotiated an, unpo- an appointment as a professor without what became Illinois' Institute of Technology. In Chicago, including a commission for to- in Chicago, including a commission to master plan its new campus at Bronzeville on the city's near south side. He thus became poised to bring together in Chicago European thinking about the steel frame as a symbol of modernity with American talent for steel fabrication in conjunction with the planar thinking previously cultivated by Wright, Gropius, and Reitvelt. Mies and his colleagues treated the IIT project like a scientific experiment they sought a rational planning grid for the whole site, testing alternative geometries for combinations of laboratories, lecture theatres and classrooms, eventually determining that a 73 meter grid could accommodate them, all successfully. This grid was laid across the 12 block site as a device for organising individual buildings and the rooms inside them. The grid, symbolising the ideas of space and mathematical objectivity, reflected MISER's belief that the planning of buildings should primarily be a technical and rational exercise. Over nearly 15 years, miser's office des- designed a sequence of low-rise rectangular blocks within IIT's grid. The first, a three-storey engineering lab, the Minerals and Metals Research Building, 1947, established the formula Its primary structure was a welded steel frame on a rectangular module expressed externally and internally with special attention paid to the detailing of the corners. Echoing the Fagus factory, its steel frame was infilled with just two materials, glass curtains set in slender steel glazing bars and panels of brickwork. To emphasise honestly that the brick was infill and not supporting structure, it was set forward from the frame as a visually separate plane. This assembly was topped with a flat roof hidden behind the steel capping beam, with hidden gutters. The facades were understood as straightforward visual consequence of the spaces inside, and the means of construction, windowless end elevations, a grid of welding steel brick infill panels, were likened by Myers's fans to the abstract modern paintings of Piet Mondrian. Wischnick Hall and Lumini Memorial Hall 1946 and the Metallurgical and Chemical Engineering Building 1947 tested variations of the formula, exploring different corner and capping details, welding together combinations of I section, rectangular hollow section and flat light steel so to achieve subtly different effects, extending through multiple projects at IIT. My's office engaged in the obsessive refinement of an architectural system, seeking to isolate ideal forms for campus buildings. Differences between successive buildings are barely discernible to non-specialists, but fans understood their development as rigorous spiritual quest to pare architecture down to basic forms and proportions. Less is more, Myes proclaimed. IIT's architecture school, S.R. Crown Hall, 1956, is frequently acknowledged as the pinnacle of the group, although it's an exception, disobeying the grid and owing less to its neighbours than a spectacular, if largely uninhabitable, house. Designed by Myers' office for Edith Farnsworth at Plano, Illinois, 1951, that house was conceived as a glass-walled box almost hovering above the ground, its rooms subdivided only with furniture, with a supporting steel frame placed outside the walls. Crown Hall's fully glazed upper story, like Farnsworth House, comprised a large single space, interrupted only by two stairs and a handful of timber screens. I sat in a half-buried basement containing a library workshop and and teaching rooms, with the steel frame again placed outside the building, supporting a secondary order of smaller steels holding the glazing. Crown Hall was a modern abstraction of a classical Greek temple, with a stepped base, columns and intricately judged proportions its single studio room symbolized rational modern space that room ceilings dropped to hide the upper glazing bars of the perimeter window frames was indescribed with a grid seemingly extended to infinite distance the glass walls were clear at the top and obscured with milky film below focusing the students views on the sky and trees understood as universal symbols of natural world rather than the messiness of passers-by. The fact of so many students sharing a large room, their desks arranged by orderly rows, produced a monastic calm where Meyer's curriculum was obsessively pursued. Some saw the studio as a blank canvas, accentuating the vibrancy of human life within. Others understood it as abstract qualities and its tendency to make its inhabitants self-police their behaviour as rigid and autocratic. It's seldom done in histories of modern architecture to note that the exposed steelwork of Myers IIT buildings paired with thin brickwork panels and single glazed windows made the building perishingly cold in Chicago's freezing winters and unbearably hot in summer. It's also rare to mention that because steel and brickwork expand and contract at different rates, many brick panels cracked and flat roofs hidden behind steel for visual effect regularly leaked. For Myers fans, like the admirers of other modern famous modern architects, these were merely defensible consequences of genius. Until recently, architectural histories also rarely acknowledged that the blocks over which Myers laid his planning grid were no empty lot. They were cleared as slums by the largely white city and institute authorities in the 1940s, having previously housed a notable middle-class black community whose cultural life was expressed in a vibrant jazz scene. Some have reinterpreted their demolition as a racially motivated social cleansing. Historian Tim Samuelson has illustrated how the Mecca Apartments, a welcoming home for black immigrants to Chicago, immortalised in the Mecca Flat Blues, 1924, was cleared to make way for Crown Hall, an alternative interpretation of Myers' campus planning grid is thus possible here in conjunction with interpretations of Crown Hall as autocratic, not just as a symbol of technical objectivity but also as a symbol of authoritarian power. Myers in the sky Myers' talent for making architectural images and steel was strikingly demonstrated by his office's high-rise buildings from the 1950s and 1960s. These drew inspiration from an early project. In 1921 Myers entered an architectural competition for a site on Friedrichstache in Berlin and was designed for a skyscraper. He made two striking photomontages celebrating the literal transparency of all glass facades. One showing floor-to-ceiling glazing enigmatically reflecting the sky in daylight. The other illustrating its see-through qualities when lit from within at night. Although they didn't win Myers the competition, these images later became famous, anticipating the modern tower block. The first steel towers built to the designs of Myers' office were twin apartment blocks overlooking Lake Michigan. Turned at 90 degrees to each other, connected with a slender low-level canopy known as 860-880 to Lakeshore Drive, internal cores provided the building structural stability. Accommodating the elevators and vertical surfaces. Individual flats, eight per floor, were laid out around the course, designed as open spaces, with fitted furniture and sliding screens substituting for most walls and doors. Structurally, a grid of primary steel columns was placed inside the outer edges of the towers, floors, encased in concrete for fireproofing. Prefabricated secondary steel elements were then fixed to the facade, expressed as vertical I sections, four per structural bay. These steel support, these steels supported aluminium framed windows and provided so-called lateral bracing, reinforcing the building against wind loads. A small break in the secondary steels at every level floor illustrated visually on the facade that these secondary steels weren't continuous and therefore weren't primary supports for the building, but the con- Donation of Myers fans. Every fifth eye section was fitted directly over a concrete encased primary steel column. These steels thus had no structural purpose added, instead to maintain the rhythm of the façade. For good modernists accustomed to Meyer's dictum that less is more and civilian's form ever follows function, these steels remained unnecessary. They were functionally redundant adornments serving only visual image of the tower and they became objects of controversy among modern architects. Just as Myers imagined the minerals and the metals building as a prototype for campus architecture, Lakeshore Drive was envisaged as a prototype for steel frame towers. The formula was refined in a series of projects accommodating diverse functions. Further apartments on the Commonwealth Promenade in Chicago 1956, Courtrooms at the Dirksen Federal Building in Chicago's Loop, 1964, and offices for Distillers Seagram in New York, 1958. The same elements recurred, shell and core planning. An internal core containing services and elevators surrounded by floor plates, and curtain facades characterized by I-section steels. The Seagram Building, designed with Philip Johnson, was a refined and expensive variation on the theme. Liquor baron Samuel Bonfram, the client, was egged on by his daughter Phyllis Lambert, who trained as an architect at IIT, rather than stepping back from the street like most New York skyscrapers, maximising the building's volume within strict zoning laws. Seagram was a straightforward rectangular block. Facade eye sections were special castings in bronze rather than stock steel sections. Key interior surfaces were clad in marble and travertine, a band of artificial lighting around the perimeter of each ceiling heightened the drama of the building's stacked floor plates when seen from below at night. Glazed internal office partitions were designed to emphasize the open plan layout. Venetian blinds were fitted with only three settings open, closed, and half closed to present an orderly image to the street. A modern art program commissioned murals, tapestries, and canvases from luminaries, including Pablo Picasso and Mark Rothko, and a plain granite plaza outside lifted three steps from the street and made calm garden. Seagram became the archetypal steel and glass tower. It became both typical and exceptional, a refined building for a specific client on a specific site and simultaneously a universal symbol of corporate modernity imitated worldwide. Details of Meyers' towers, like columns placed for visual effect as cladding over structural ones, and decorative steel casings fitted around structural columns, didn't always express their structural logic directly, but they did always illustrate this idea. Meyers' towers, like most modern buildings, were representational. They didn't represent ideas about the past like previous architectures had, but engaged itself in self-representation, expressing and sometimes subtly enhancing the imagery of their own constructional logic to evoke ideas about modernity shaping modern culture in steel in 1831 victor hugo had anticipated a modern architecture reflecting scientific culture arguing for special buildings which people could identify with as symbols of the age Myers believed that his work fulfilled this promise Indeed, his fans likened the i section steels of Lakeshore Drive to the tracery of medieval Gothic cathedrals. True architecture, Myers claimed, is always objective and is the expression of the inner structure of our times, from which it comes. He didn't just think he was designing individual buildings for individual sites and clients. He thought he was isolating the universal forms of architecture itself paring down the logic of steel and building types, like campus buildings and high-rise towers, to their essential images. Myers imagined himself not as inventing a style, but as identifying the authentic, timeless architectural expression of the future. Once the job of isolating these forms was done, Myers imagined he would pass the images and techniques to others, for repeating and refining. He imagined he was designing bespoke prototypes for others to mass-produce. Indeed, he lavished attention on the first campus buildings and towers designed in his office. But, once he felt the archetypes were established, left later versions to his associates. Easily imagined as a kit of columns and beams like the construction toy Meccano, iron and steel nurtured ideas about perfect modern architecture. Philosopher Walter Benjamin noted in 1935 how the imagery of iron architecture was derived dialectically. Out of the conflict between old symbolic codes developed for stone and wood and new forms of structural technology, iron and steel frames were encouraged in iron and steel frames encouraged the integration of structure with services and ideas of space with industrial production, assembling buildings from sophisticated engineering components to express ideas about technological modernity. The emphasis on the rational structural calculation of components shifted design attention from the whole building to the parts, just as scientific cultures shifted western thinking from traditional holistic religious views to a greater focus on the individual. Such shifts were as latent in the Iron Bridge and the Eiffel Tower as they were at Crown Hall and Seagram. The job of the architect genius, as Mies modestly understood himself in later life, was to work through the cultural and social consequences of new logics of production to determine the true architectural forms of modernity. For him, the material best suited to these labours was steel.